So we're going to have uh, two readings this morning. The first one is from the Old Testament, Isaiah, so the prophet Isaiah. And we're going to read a prophecy that he spoke of thousands of years, um, 700 years before Jesus will remind us of it in a parable he tells. So Isaiah, it's Psalms, then Proverbs, then a couple more books, and then you find yourself in Isaiah. Or if you've got a phone, you just click I for Isaiah, I assume. So Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and he cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judea, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard that I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its walls and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither prune nor cultivate it, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. So we're now going to move into back into the book of Luke. Uh, so Jesus has just come into Jerusalem, and as we know, he's entering into the last week of his earthly ministry. So he arrives at the temple. Luke 19, verse 45. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it amongst themselves and they said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say it's of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know 
where it was from? Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell this parable. Sorry, he went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. He rented it to some farmers and he went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is their heir, they said. Let's kill him. And then inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and he will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and he asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Okay, thank you, Matt. Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you all. Uh, I don't know if you've been watching the news or been in Sydney recently, but last night uh, we had the annual gay and lesbian Mardi Gras through the streets of Sydney. Uh, And uh, after a few years of COVID, it, it was back bigger than ever, partly because this year Sydney is hosting worldwide pride celebrations. Uh, So it's kind of like the Olympic Games of the LGBTQIA plus movement. Uh, So a a kind of a global gathering. Um, I was in Sydney last week, so my kids live in Newtown. So I've got two two of my uh, sons and their families live in Newtown, only a few hundred metres away from uh, the, the Mardi Gras fair that took place last week. Um, And uh, as I entered the fairgrounds, the sign said this, we are about inclusivity. If you represent one of the LGBTQIA plus communities, you are welcome. And I did wonder, what is... And I wondered. um, And I wondered, partly because we Christians have an uneasy relationship with these celebrations, don't we? Um, On the one hand, like Jesus... We want to extend God's love to everyone. Uh, The gospel of Jesus is incredibly inclusive. The love of Jesus is offered to every single person on the planet, no matter their race, uh, their skin colour, their 
you know, socioeconomic, no matter what their past is, no matter their sexuality, no matter their gender, the good news of Jesus offers hope and life to every single person on the planet. It is a message for all, uh, all welcome. But on the other hand, like Jesus, we want to honour God with our bodies. Uh, We want to understand and embrace God's intentions for our lives, uh, our bodies, our gender and our sexuality. So what do you do? Um, See, it feels to me the problem is our society has lost nuance, uh, has lost the ability to to clarify things and and to discuss things rationally. And so the problem for us Christians is if, if, we not, if we're not seen and heard to give wholehearted endorsement to every expression of LGBTQIA plus lifestyle, then we, we are then accused of being hateful or homophobic or judgmental. And so what are you meant to do? It, it really is a, f- a fraught space to step into. What do you do when someone asks that question? What do you think of all of this? Now, I reckon there is a temptation to shrink back. There is a temptation to become very silent uh, at that point. Um, there's even a temptation to feel ashamed of the Word of God because we know that there are passages from the Word of God that are, will be seen as inflammatory. Uh, and so we can be tempted to be ashamed of God's Word and the words of Jesus. Now today, I want to call us to a different response. Not, not just to this issue of sexuality, but I want to call us to courageous faith, courageous discipleship in all areas of our lives. As we step out into a world that does not know Jesus and that he's missing out on his love and the hope found in the gospel, I want to I encourage us, in fact, God wants us to, to encourage us not to shrink back and to be anonymous and even ashamed, but to be courageous in our faith. And the sort of courage that God wants us to have is God-honouring, wise and loving. Uh, and that's exactly what we're going to see with Jesus uh, here in Luke chapter 20. So open up your Bible to Luke chapter 20, because we're going to start with the courage of Jesus. We're going to think about his authority and then kind of what it means for us. So I want to start off with the courage of Jesus. Um, And I've called it the God-honouring, wise, loving courage of Jesus. And somehow or other, my PowerPoint has lost a heading there. I don't know... It might have been imported in a way that's kind of changed all the, all the fonts and stuff. Jeff's onto it. All right, okay. So uh, let me tell you about... So, so my first point is about the courage of Jesus, and I've qualified his courage as God-honouring, wise, and loving. Uh, and we've seen this throughout the Gospel of Luke. So back in chapter 9, Jesus set his face resolutely for Jerusalem. Um, So that was only a couple of weeks before Luke chapter 20. Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem 
And again and again, he tells his disciples what awaits him in Jerusalem. What awaits him is rejection, humiliation. He's going to be misunderstood. He's going to suffer and ultimately be killed at the hands of the Gentiles and the leaders of the Jewish people and the Jewish religious leaders. He knows that's what awaits him, and yet he presses on with incredible courage, even though his disciples have no idea what's going on. Uh, Jesus presses on step by step. It's incredible courage. And when he enters Jerusalem, what does he do? He goes straight into the temple, he makes a whip, and he drives out the corrupt, greedy buyers and sellers that have gathered there. Uh, can, you, can you just imagine the scene that that would... Because like, there's already a popular following of Jesus. You know, he's kind of welcomed in as a king, and he goes into, into the temple with a whip and starts driving out uh, people. And so now in chapter 20, he comes into the temple grounds and he's in open debate with the religious leaders. Right? The best minds that Israel has produced are gathered together and it's not neutral. They are hostile. They're looking to trap Jesus. They're looking to humiliate Jesus. They're looking for grounds to kill him. So look at chapter 19, verse 47. See what it says? Every day Jesus was teaching at the temple... But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders of, among the people were trying to kill him. And so the kind of debate that he's entering into, it's not a thirst for knowledge. This is a debate where they're trying to trap Jesus in his words. Just imagine how scary it is. I, I don't know, if, like public speaking's difficult, isn't it? And public speaking where you're, where you, where you're afraid that you're going to be humiliated, uh, that's even more terrifying. But what about public speaking where you know that those who stand opposed to you are, try are looking for a grounds to kill you? Uh, that takes a lot of courage to step into that. But despite the opposition, Jesus engages with their questions. And as we continue to follow the events of those last days of Jesus' life, we will, we will be amazed at Jesus' courage as he faces the horror of his death on the cross. Uh, he overcomes fear. He overcomes dread. And it's all because he fears God more than he fears man. Right? He's confident that he's acting in line with the will of God and so he presses forward and, and overcomes his fear and acts with great courage. But it's also because Jesus knows that the path of suffering that God has laid out before him, that's the only way that people like you and me can be saved. Right? The only way that God's forgiveness could flow to all people on the world is through Jesus courageously stepping forward and ultimately laying down his life as a sacrifice in our place. And so, the love of, the love of God and the love of us 
compels Jesus to press on, to have courage, to overcome fear. And this is the sort of courage that Jesus wants us to imitate. Honouring God. So I want to ask, will you live your life with a healthy fear of God? What we're going to see in, uh, as we continue this chapter is that the religious leaders, they feared people more than they feared God. They were more concerned what the people thought about them than what God thought about them. And I want to call you to exactly the opposite. I want to call you to, to be more concerned about God and his opinion than the fickle opinions of the people around about you. Uh, and, and when I talk about fearing God, it's not terror, but because he, he's our heavenly father. He doesn't want us to be terrified of him, but, but a, a sober respect and honouring and obedience because he is the one who ultimately we must give an account you know, we're not going to have to give an account at the end of time to, the, to, the, to our boss or the people around about us or the people who live in our street. We will give an account to the God who made us and sent his son to die for us. Um, so will you have the courage to honour God? Will you seek God's wisdom to go deeply into his word? Because uh, that's what Jesus modelled, isn't it? a grappling with the Word of God so that as challenge and question and so on came, he was, he was prepared. He, he, he knew God's Word. And I want my vision for the Lakes Church is to, ha- to be a learning community where we're grappling with the Word of God together so that we can live wise and godly lives. And the growth groups are really a key part of that. So I'm glad Russell mentioned them. You know, the seniors, that one person is really enjoying. Now, now, even though Russell was saying you can opt into any of them, I want to say the growth groups are a critical part of all of our ministries. And that's because that's where we're grappling with God's word and what does God want for us and how can we hold on to his promises. And that's our life, the word of God. So will you honour God, seek God's wisdom, and will you put your own interests aside and live a life of love, even courageous love? And what would that look like for you this week? To imitate the courage of Jesus, right? His God-honouring, wise, loving courage. We'll come back to Luke 20 because I want you to notice at the heart of this passage, you see Jesus' courage, but you also see Jesus' authority, his power. Uh, So come on to the second heading, and that is the authority of Jesus. Uh, And I've just got a few things to say under this heading, and then we'll wrap up. So the religious leaders are well aware of Jesus' courage. Uh, they're, They're actually offended by Jesus' courage. Because here he is, this guy from Nazareth comes into the temple with a whip and drives them out. And he speaks with such courage or an authority and they are infuriated by it because they're meant to be the boss. 
They're meant to be the ones that everyone listens to and looks up to, but now Jesus is challenging their authority by his actions and by the words he said. So have a look at uh, chapter 20, verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders came to him. Right, this is a heavy, the heavy weights of Israel come to Jesus. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Who gave you this authority? And it's a reasonable question, isn't it? You can't just go stepping into the temple with a whip and driving people out unless, like, not, not anybody can do that. So what gives you the authority, Jesus, to do these things? Now, we know this is a hostile question, so remember at the end of chapter 19, they're looking for a reason to kill Jesus. They're looking to trap him. And I want, So here's a question for you. When Jesus is asked a hostile question, how does he respond? Right? There's a pattern. He always responds in the same way. They ask him a hostile question. He asks them a question in reply. So, verse 3... He replied, I will also ask you a question. Uh, tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Uh, there's a real wisdom of Jesus. He doesn't just jump in, uh, pander to them. He, he'll actually ask them a question. Um, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Now, it is a great reply because John the Baptist endorsed Jesus. John the Baptist recognised Jesus as the Messiah. He said, the kingdom of God is coming. It's time to repent and be baptised. And the people believed John. What are the religious leaders going to do with John? <clears throat> so verse 5, they disgusted amongst themselves. And there's a desperation here because they know that Jesus, it, <laughs> Jesus can, can catch them out here. And it, and so Jesus is almost playing their game. So they discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say John was from heaven, then Jesus is going to ask, well, why didn't you believe him? But if we say, well, John was of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. Now see how wimpy they are. There's no courage being shown by the religious leaders, they're just playing that political game of what answer is going to lead to the most politically expedient outcome for us. But can you see there's no courage? There's no personal conviction? They were people pleasers. If they wanted to know the answer, Jesus has given them all they need to know. Um, so if they wanted to know the answer, they, they need to follow Jesus' thread, right? If John the Baptist came from heaven, and if John the Baptist then endorsed Jesus as the Messiah, God's long-awaited king, then surely it follows that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the king we've been waiting for. But they are too hard-hearted to draw that conclusion. So look at their answer, verse 7. We don't know where he was from. Uh, just total cop-out. And so Jesus said, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. But the question hasn't dropped because Jesus will then go on to say a parable. 
right? And, and, and he continues on this theme of authority by telling the parable of the vineyard. Verse 9, a man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. Now, just quick, with the person next to you, I want you to think, in Jesus' story, what's the vineyard and who owns this vineyard? What do you think? Just start thinking about Jesus' story. A man planted a vineyard, rented it out to farmers, went away for a long time. Have a chat to the person next to you. Who do you think the vineyard is? Who owns the vineyard? Now, can you see what I'm doing? What I'm doing, whenever Jesus tells a parable, I don't want to just give you easy answers because Jesus is inviting us to grapple with his words. Uh, and so, and, and, but anyway, look, we heard from Isaiah chapter 5 in our Bible reading. Let me put it up on the screen. Isaiah, so 700 years before Jesus, uh, God is speaking about, well, Listen to the song. I will sing a song for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of its stones. He planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. You know, the reason you plant a vine is because... You want to bear fruit. And so he's even he's got a watchtower to protect it, but he's also got a wine press expectant that there will be fruit and wine will come from this vineyard. But uh, a few verses later, so, so there's no good fruit. A few verses later it says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah and the vines he delighted in. Uh, and he looked for justice but he saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. In the words of Isaiah chapter 5, this song, then the vineyard, the vine and the vineyard is the people of Israel and the people of Jerusalem. And the owner of the vine is God, the Lord Almighty. Um, And so that's clear in Isaiah chapter 5. So back in Jesus' parable, when he tells this song about the vineyard, you know, the crowd should be thinking, ah, the vineyard is the people of Israel. The owner of the vine is God himself. But then another question, who are the tenants? Who are these farmers who are meant to be looking after the vineyard, producing a crop? Who do you reckon the tenants or the farmers are? Yeah, the religious leaders of Israel. Uh, And verse 19, they know Jesus said this parable against them. They know Jesus is thinking of them as the farmers or the tenants. Um, And so just let me step into the world of the parable. Just the owner of the vineyard keeps sending servants to, to get some fruit from the vineyard. Uh, And each time they come to the vineyard, 
the farmers or the tenants of the vineyard beat up the servants uh, or, or kick them out, send them away. And, what, and, and the pattern of the Old Testament is, is the same. God kept sending his prophets to call on the nation of Israel to repent, to start bearing fruit uh, of godliness in their lives. But the religious leaders of Israel had a history of rejecting the prophets that God sent, one after another. And now, finally, God has sent his own son, his heir. And Jesus is talking about himself at this point. The son of God has come, the Messiah. And notice what happens in the parable. Verse 14, when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Can you see what Jesus is doing? There in the hearing of all the crowds and the religious leaders in particular, he is predicting his own death at the hands of these very religious leaders. Um, That is courage, isn't it? To stand in that context, to actually predict your own death at the hands of the very people who are trying to trap you in your words. And he's not only predicting his own death, but he's also foreshadowing God's judgment that would come on those religious leaders and perhaps even the the nation of Israel. So verse 15, What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And so look at the reaction of the people as they heard this. God forbid. Like it is just, it is just a gasp of horror from those listening. Why do they say God forbid? Is, there's a number of threads, aren't there? Could it, uh, could it be that the Messiah, God's son, the one we've been waiting for for so long, could it be that the religious leaders kill him? reject God's son? Could it be that God would reject the leaders of his own people? They're things that are almost too awful to imagine. Uh, And so their reaction is, God forbid. Verse 17, Jesus looked directly at them and asked, well then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, this is, this, is my, this is my final point under the authority of Jesus, so just bear with me for a moment. At this point, Jesus is quoting Psalm 118, right? a psalm written hundreds of years before Jesus. Psalm 118, you should go and read it at home. Right? Write it down, Psalm 118. It is a song about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of God's King, coming up into Jerusalem, and the crowds welcoming him as king because the kingdom of God is being ushered in. And so this is a prophetic psalm, hundreds of years before Jesus, looking forward to the coming of God's king. This is the psalm that we heard about last week. Uh, I think it was last week. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem, was that 
two weeks ago. Anyway, anyway, you remember, remember last week? Okay, so he comes into Jerusalem. They're waving their palm branches and they sing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, that's, that's Psalm 118. And, and so they're welcoming Jesus as the great Messiah King. That's what the disciples were doing. So it's a song of celebration of the coming King. But the, Psalm 118 contains this cryptic sentence. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Uh, and that's the part of the psalm Jesus quotes. Now the image here is uh, of a foundation stone, right? So I'm a civil engineer, I can speak with authority uh, on these sort of things. Uh, so the foundation stone. So the idea is that, uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed, when a building's built, so much work is done on the foundations because if the foundations are right, then the rest of the building can find its place from there. Uh, and the foundation of God's kingdom or the foundation of God's new temple, the, foundations, uh, the foundation stone is, is the first stone that's put in place and it bears the weight of the rest of the building, but it also becomes kind of like the reference point uh, and every other stone that is laid is laid kind of in alignment with the foundation stone. <clears throat> but notice tragically in this psalm, the builders reject the stone that would one day become the foundation stone. All right, the ancient song of Psalm 118 foretold that God's Messiah would be rejected by the leaders of God's people, by the builders themselves. They would throw that stone away and yet that won't stop God installing his king because the stone the builders rejected, it would become the foundation stone, the cornerstone. And, and how tragic that even as Jesus reminds them of these ancient prophecies, the religious leaders will still follow through and kill Jesus. Like it's incredibly ironic, isn't it? That Jesus is telling them what they're about to do, that they are about to reject the, found, the cornerstone, and yet they'll still follow through and do it. Now, two months later, after, after, the, after these words that Jesus spoke, um, and, and this will be after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Apostle Peter will stand before the Jewish people and he will once more quote this psalm. So this is Acts chapter 4 and Peter says, The stone you builders rejected... Uh, sorry, Jesus, he will say Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. <clears throat> Notice the rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders is not the final word. The religious leaders got it tragically wrong, and they will be held to account. But God raised Jesus up as God's eternal king. God's verdict matters far more than the verdict of those religious leaders. And he, the resurrection is God's instalment of Jesus as the cornerstone, the Messiah, the, the, the foundation of the kingdom that will last forever. And I want to say, 
just as the leaders got it wrong in Jesus' day, so the leaders in our day so often get it tragically wrong. So many of our leaders, whether it's our political leaders or celebrities or social influencers, so many of the gatekeepers of our society do not recognise Jesus as God's King. But God wants you to know that he has raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation on which his kingdom is being built. Jesus is the foundation stone of the new temple. And as we come to him, we are built uh, into that new temple. And each one of us has a choice. Will we recognize Jesus as our king? Will we find salvation in him? Will we honor him and worship him as king? Or will we follow the error of so many leaders throughout history who have rejected the cornerstone? But we're told that they will answer before God for their rejection. Now let me come back um, to where we started. I spoke about courage at the beginning. And we need, we want to imitate the courage of our Lord Jesus. But it is a high, it is a high standard to imitate, isn't it? His God-honouring, wise, loving courage. And I want to say that's what, that's what we aspire to, but our courage will look different from Jesus' courage. Um, and to give you a sense of this, I want to take you to a scene from The Lion King. Now, does anyone remember The Lion King? Of course you do. There's a scene where Simba and Nala are surrounded by hyenas, uh, and, and it's you know, a scary scene. Uh, they're being threatened, mocked, uh, and, and these little lions just look so vulnerable. And Simba lets out a roar. Rawr. And the hyenas just fall about laughing, you know, because there's nothing scary about Simba's roar. And then he roars again. And, and, it's just, and even Simba is surprised and the hyenas are terrified because, of, of course, what's going on? It's actually Mufasa who's standing behind Simba who is roaring. Uh, and I reckon that is like us. Right? On our own, in our own strength, we are like little Simba surrounded by the hyenas. Uh, and, you know, a, a piddly roar. And we have every reason to be anxious and timid if we stand in our own strength. But if we belong to Jesus, we're not on our own. He is with us. Uh, and we come in his name, in his authority. So remember when Jesus rose from the dead, just before he ascended into heaven, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority has been given to Jesus. He's now the cornerstone. Therefore, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Right, we go out 
in the name of Jesus with the authority of Jesus. Now, I want to just make sure we don't do it wrong, right? This is not then us strutting our stuff like little Simbas, you know, rowing at every little insect uh, we find, uh, but rather we're being called upon to imitate Jesus and his courage, right? God-honouring, wise, loving courage. Uh, And we stand not in our own strength, uh, not self-satisfied, self-dependent, but we stand in his strength, his power. We go out in his name. So I'm going to lead us in prayer as we do that, as we step out into another week uh, in Jesus' name uh, to fulfil his commission. Let's pray. God, our Father, we acknowledge today that you are the mighty God. Your Son is King over all. We're sorry that so often we fear people more than we fear you. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to be our eternal king. Uh, We want to praise you for his courage, his God-honouring, wise, loving courage. Even going to the cross in our place, we wonder, uh, we are amazed by his love. Father, please... Forgive us for the times we have not honoured you as we should, the times we have acted foolishly, the times we've been self-centred. Please so work in our hearts by your Spirit that we imitate Jesus and his courage. Thank you that we don't have to stand in our own strength, but that you are with us. You will never leave us or forsake us. Your Spirit dwells in us and Jesus has promised He'll be with us to the very end of the age. So please give us courage in your strength to live out, uh, to live our lives for you and for the Lord Jesus this week, this year, and throughout the rest of our lives. Please use us to hold out your word of truth, your words of eternal life, uh, and strengthen us to testify to Jesus and our hope in him. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.